recording in progress. Thanks for letting me know. Okay. Hello, everyone. Welcome. This is a another Filled three articles. What? Sorry, I should I, I I shouldn't have interrupted you there because I but Phil didn't notice that we weren't recording. So for me, what? Okay, shut up. Welcome to another three articles, uh, an episode of Auf Hibunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history, which I'm obliged to say, otherwise the other guys have a go at me. Hello, George. George in his regulation gray t-shirt. Phil, Phil looking very handsome today, um, I, which I only know because he has told us about two or three times while we were recording the previous episode we just recorded. Um, Phil, how does it feel Thanks, to be Alex. so handsome? That's, that's- I know, right? It, it's sometimes it can be hard, but it's good to be appreciated, particularly by your fellow podcasters, even if they're living, you know, they're far away from you. But it's it's thank you. I appreciate your support. Mm. Um, I'm also assuming that you didn't say that I was looking very handsome today because that's taken. That's like a given. But people have to so tell me that they look handsome. It. Otherwise, I don't. I'm I'm a handsome blindness. I've got handsome blindness. <laughs> I don't. I can't recognize handsomeness. Yeah, but also you need to change your shirt occasionally, George, for you to count as handsome. Uh, so I have more than one of the same T-shirt. Doing anyway. the cut, doing the cut price Silicon Valley oligarch look. It doesn't really, it doesn't really win you friends. Well, maybe I'm not looking to win friends. I'm looking to make good enemies and and be productive. But anyway, what I was going to say is that we call this three articles, but that's like three A. So it's like triple A rated. That's what we should say. Should we? Um, You just have. Um, Could do. (laughs) So we're recording this on on, on, uh, Sunday, the 15th of August. You're only hearing this in, I think, two weeks away or something like that. Um, But uh, the articles that we've chosen aren't... uh, directly uh timely um they'll still be very relevant when you hear them in two in two weeks um but before then uh, anybody been watching anything good i uh i i we're recording this on the day of the finale of a series which i've really liked i think it's the first thing that i've seen that's been produced i guess during the pandemic or since the pandemic began um which is hbo's uh mini series the white lotus um which i really recommend have you guys seen this yeah i think it's a perfect um satire of today's no no Rich. No, that's <laughs> I have I have a review of it in Jacobin, and, and George has just decided to to cite back to me the headline. I didn't like that headline. Is, is like that a, what is is that what I, I mean? Like we were clearly on the same page. No, I actually I haven't seen it. You haven't seen it. Um, what's it, what's Phil? it about? Phil, you haven't have you seen it? No, I've not seen it either. Um, it's it's very good. It takes place on a Hawaiian resort, and it's these very rich people. Um, not like mega rich, but really quite rich uh people who um go on uh well go on a holiday and it's what's great about it is that it's a satire of the rich but specifically it skewers a lot of you know contemporary social mores and whatever so you know you've got the daughter who's like this like super woke college sophomore um and her mother who's this kind of hillary stand girl boss um and they all all the characters kind of manage to in some ways land blows on each other without any of them actually coming across that well. Um, and at the same time, you've got this kind of put upon hotel staff who, um, who's, uh, who are kind of at the end of their tether um, dealing with these people. Um, it's very good though. It's kind of, it's sophisticatedly done and quite uh, lots of nice tension and great soundtrack of like kind of tribal drums kind of pounding um, kind of ratcheting up the tension. It's, it's good. It's good. It's not, Superb. I don't think it's as good as like Succession, which I guess it can be compared to. Um, you guys are watching Succession, I suppose. Yeah, I'm watching, how can we watch it when it's not on TV at the moment? We've no, no, but I mean, it, you've yeah. watched it. You're you're in the yeah. process still, you know. 
Yeah. I mean, he didn't, Phil, he wasn't saying that we're literally watching it at this point in time while we're recording. Yeah, so that would be unprofessional. You know, you can, you can kind of take that for granted. I mean, I've, I've, it's good to have a show recommended. I mean, I've, I've been watching some uh, regional <laughs> British detective shows, including Shetland, set in Shetland. Uh, which other ones? The Bay, set in Morecambe, um, McDonald and Dodds, set in, in Bristol. Jesus. I don't know why. How I've, many of these are there? There's, there's so many. Um, they try to do so like Nordic noir, so they're all choosing like northern oh. British areas. Uh, Hinterland, which is set in Aberystwyth in West Wales, and that's kind of Wales noir. So there's you've got the whole the whole of the British Isles. What is like Wales noir? Killing each other. Is it as good as a lot of the Nordic series, or it's what more, is Welsh more, noir? It's it's um like like crime noir. But set <laughs> well, in, actually, the, set the in answer Wales. to that would be coal miners, I suppose. You know, not anymore, not, but yeah, no, yeah. good. That was pretty good. Um, no, I mean, like, I don't know why I, I've, I've watched so many of these um, recently, but I think that it's good comfort TV in the sense that it's like the good guys and the bad guys, and then the good guys win. So it's basically, I'm, I'm, well, I don't know why I'm publicly admitting to kind of basically all of this like children's TV stuff, but I like it, and there's no harm in it. So let people enjoy stuff. Stop criticizing. Yeah, just- yeah um but no i i i yeah just it's it's good to good to chain watch these because then you get to to think about what would it be like if shetland really did have this kind of murder rate where every every other week three people are getting killed by a serial killer um but yeah there's also there's also probably something that appeals my kind of bloodless pmc that, that really would be drawn the, uh, to the violence that really would be the brazilianization of the world uh-huh um yeah, uh, let's get on to the three articles. I don't know if they kind of cohere into a theme. I kind of maybe middle class anxieties. Um, we'll, we'll we'll try that, or we'll put you know kind of uh, put a pin in that for now. Uh, the first one is uh, George's. So uh, bake them away, toys. Yes. So um, and bake is actually interesting in this context because we're talking about climate change and uh, global warming vaguely. Um, so yeah. Uh, no, I will take it away. So yeah, I've, I've gone for something from The Telegraph, 7th of August by Edward Malnick, who's the Sunday political editor, and Emma Gatton, the environment editor. And it's called Boris Johnson's push for net zero plunged into chaos. Treasury review has been delayed over fears. Working class families will end up footing the bill for the government's green agenda. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so what, what's this about? Uh, basically, the treasury review of the costs of decreasing um, net greenhouse gas emissions to zero, obviously net zero, by 2050. Have, uh, so this treasury review has been delayed to the spring. And this is in the context of UK legislation, which is committing to net zero by 2050, which is estimated to cost in the region of like 90, well, 93.98 billion uh, quid which is more than the uh, annual education spend and eight times the london olympics so that's the what like why did i think this was interesting i think one thing is just like there are going to be various political conflicts over net zero and i think this is this is going to be something that's we'll probably end up talking about quite a lot so just an early indicator of that secondly i think it's interesting to kind of like look at the contradictions in the tory project because you have this like this fear then the article spells this out explicitly this fear that the tories will lose um, voters from red wall seats like if they end up having to foot the bill and it's like ten thousand pounds for a um, heat pump to replace a gas uh, boiler so that's a lot of money um and on the other hand this kind of worry 
of like stealing Corbyn's ideas or like being seen to do so because this kind of like green it green Tory thing is seen to seen by some to be basically nicked from from Corbyn a, a failed radical labor labor leader um, and then just a final point I think which is interesting is the the article talks about like this massive public investment in green technologies and and how this is like this is moving from a probably more like fringe ideology or, or like you know fringe set of ideas to actually being something which is going to cost uh, a lot of a lot of money and probably be politically quite uh, contentious so yeah uh, that's the reason why i wanted to 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 push for this for this article um to be discussed by us in the three articles forum so what did you think backbench propaganda i thought i mean you know i think you're right that there is going to be it's going to be a kind of a line of conflict um and it's worth kind of trying to think through what the lines of conflict might be over net zero in terms of um how it might alter uh, consumption distribution production and who will kind of um how governments will try to shift costs around and who will bear the weight of the costs of the transformation and what have you i guess the reason i'm suspicious of it is because it seems to me that the reason the telegraph in particular has latched onto it which is the conservative the largest kind of conservative broadsheet in the uk it's latched onto it is because it's found a way there was always skeptic was already skeptical of enhanced public spending um particularly that the government has committed to it as a way of keeping hold of the labor constituencies that swung to boris johnson in the last election and now they found a way to kind of uh, stoke that suspicion um but by claiming for it to be on behalf of working class voters so instead of like you know instead of the previous infrastructure spending that they were trashing which was about kind of improving public transport improving um training and further education and investing in infrastructure in the north now it's something which hits households more right and so they're very happy to kind of pile in and criticize so i guess what i'm saying is that i think that there is not only kind of the um you know one line of contention which is how far will working class people have to pay for the transformation to net zero but also within that they're trying to you know they're trying to kind of extend under the cover of that to denounce essentially to call into question all forms of um public spending um and you know they've seen a perfect opportunity basically to use uh to kind of uh, instrumentalize i suppose working class suspicions over net zero in order to make um in order to kind of uh undermine the credibility of enhanced public spending per se yeah i think that's right i mean <clears throat> i think we yeah, we could be skeptical of i guess the telegraph's take but i think also reading um through i guess some of what these proposals look like it does uh you know kind of back up my suspicion that without kind of greater democratization of society and of the state, all sorts of green uh, measures, as necessary as they are in terms of decarbonizing the economy, uh, are will only end up being punitive and the costs will fall on the majority. Um, and that's quite that's quite frightening. I mean, making people kind of pay for a new boiler, a new kind of heating system in their own house seems one, uh, I'm not sure how much that deals with a lot of the emissions. Um, and two, again, it kind of privatizes the privatizes the pain, basically. Um, and I think in the, you know, if you look in the wider context, like Britain is super interested in becoming a producer of 
and something that's mentioned in the article, a producer of uh, of green technologies, especially around energy. So, you know, photovoltaic cells and wind turbines, especially. Um, and wind turbines are completely unreliable. They don't provide a good, reliable energy source. They might be a useful adjunct to uh, whether it's gas or nuclear, um, but they can't be the base for, for you know, British energy production. And that's a real, that's kind of the backdrop to all of this, that, you know, for example, where they should be investing in nuclear um they they aren't and, and maybe aren't able to because they still want you know the private sector to do a lot of the lifting and the private sector doesn't want to apparently the um was it in this piece where they said that the subsidy to wind is going to end in the 2030s and then they expect the price of wind power to um to go back again because part of the reason it's low at the moment is that the wind wind turbine industry has been the beneficiary of various kind of government subsidies um but i mean yeah it's an intrinsically kind of unreliable source of power um, I wonder, in fact, why it's so popular. Um, I think part of it might be to do with the fact that it offers the kind of um, it offers this kind of uh, promise of reindustrialization, or we can make things again, which are kind of large and technologically sophisticated and impressive looking. And also, it has a visible public presence, right? So you can see kind of wind farms both in the countryside and off the coastline in the UK, and perhaps you know that offers some sense of reassurance that there are things being done say you know i mean yeah. you don't see kind of and enormous solar farms uh you know kind of spreading across the countryside and i wonder if that is may maybe part of the appeal of wind in addition you know supposedly there's more wind around you know these kind of north sea isles and all that but um i think maybe the appeal of it is is uh, also because it's visible in a way yes. so the government can kind of say we're doing something look so i mean in addition to that kind of replacement of the dark satanic mills with the 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 wind turbines i think the second reason why it's popular is it, it obviously gives british people another opportunity to talk about the weather and to talk about oh what's the what's the wind like today do you think we're getting some good um will, some will good the lights will that? the lights come on no it's it's not windy today so uh, can't turn the <laughs> lights on um but the other thing is also because it it part of Britain's or the Tories kind of vague idea of reindustrializing Britain or something like that uh, is that this is these are exportable things. So uh, the part of the idea of them becoming a wind turbine major wind turbine producer is to be able to export this to other countries as well. Um, but yeah, it seems to be um, it seems to be a bit of a folly actually um, in terms both in terms yeah, of I decarbonizing mean, so just, and in providing more energy. Yeah, I mean. I think there could be um, a process, and this is when the article talks about this, like that most wind farms will not be economically viable when existing subsidies end. So this would be from the 2030s. So having to have those shut down or or maybe even taken down would be, you know, that's the flip side of that visibility is if you you end up dismantling them, that's a pretty, that's a kind of a public relations um uh, disaster of of some sort, but no, I think um, I think that is that is a, another part of the context here that the the Tories want to be um, global leaders in you know there's got to be some sort of technology that they're looking around and you know this is this is this is finally the one we can be the exporters of of all of this it's because it is both um, it's kind of quite hip and 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 shiny and and uh, morally good but also has the you know British engineering at its at its core so it's a good it's a good fit and also conservatives you know conservatives conserve the environment you know that's that's what they're that's you know what they're what they're there for um to a certain extent or at least that's what the name suggests um I had one point uh I think which ties into this sort of is neoliberalism ending discussion that we've had a lot on this podcast. We had it in the episode that will have come out two weeks ago in the uh, alpha bonus bonus um which is that here 
um, the move to not, not just with wind turbines, but also with uh, introducing heat pumps into people's houses instead of gas boilers, um, is that this is not the state doing it. So the idea, at least uh, Rishi Sunak's idea that the chancellor's idea is that the private sector will do most of the heavy lifting. So they might offer subsidies to early adopters of these things, probably, you know, kind of middle-class homes who uh, have the money or maybe want to be able to, you know, invest in, in having a greener home and, uh, you know, sort of more ideologically wedded to this to then buy in these things. And then once the market gets off the ground, then kind of the market is left uh, to, to get on with it because um, these things will have been, you know, the, the market, the market will be, or prices will be cheaper, basically. Mm. Um, so it's not really the state undertaking to buy up a huge amount of these heat pumps and installing people them in people's homes. It's still trying to use, kind of create a market, basically, which is pure neoliberal. Yeah, I guess one question as well is how generalizable this is. Like, is this a specifically British phenomenon, given the, the um, uh, commitment to to net zero by 2050? Or is this something which is actually we're going to see spreading as more concrete kind of climate um, um, commitments are made, you know, I think you can see this, this, this model is not, is not terrible for the, for the private sector. There's some pretty healthy subsidies to be doing this. So you could definitely see this happening in, in America, Europe, elsewhere, etc. So, yeah, I mean, that's, I think there's, there's presumably more, you know, more on this, on this um, topic to, to come in, in later episodes. Indeed. Uh, and we recorded this, obviously, as, as Greece is burning. So, um, yeah, kind of. It's, it's obviously not going away, is it? The, the, the old climate change. Um, anyway, let's let's move on. Um, this is uh, the second one is uh, my, my piece. It's in the Financial Times. Uh, once again, I really got to broaden my reading, but uh, but there's good stuff there. Um, this is a big read in the Financial Times. China's nanny state, why she is cracking down on gaming and private tutors. Now, I assume everyone will have heard the news of, uh, of China's crackdown on the private tutor industry, massive uh, billion-dollar industry in China, and it, it clamped down on it overnight and it created huge losses uh, in, the, in the stock markets. Um, the share prices in Chinese education companies listed in uh, New York crashed. Um, and th- but this is part of a broader shift in the Chinese state to becoming, uh, I guess, more nannying uh, is the term that the Financial Times uses. So as well as the clampdown on private tutoring, uh, she also wants to cut, uh, you know, kind of prohibit gaming. Um, and so, you know, finally, someone's coming for the gamers. Uh, I think we should all rejoice. Um, it would be good if Western governments started clamping, killing the gamers, rounding them up, putting them in camps um, and making them do exercise instead of gaming. Um, in seriousness, no, they they call the, the Chinese uh, or she sees gaming as a spiritual opium. Um, of course, uh, calling something an opium uh, has a lot of weight in, in China, of course. Um, and it's tied into this uh, worry around uh, Tang Ping, apparently it's called, which is lying flat, which is a sort of turning inward. Um, and this concern, you know, similar thing to the sort of hikimori in Jap- Japan of a certain, um, in, in response to the sort of stresses and strains and demands uh, of modern life, uh, the, the demand to be successful, um, that instead, you know, children, teenagers, young adults turn inward and kind of retreat from the world and just turn towards gaming and so on. Um, and, and 
I, part of the drive against the the private tutoring, in some sense, is because of the of the massive uh, entrance exams that China has, the largest such in the world, uh, called Gao Kao. Um, excuse my pronunciation of Mandarin, um, which adds to this sort of relentless stress of modern urban life, especially for the middle classes. Um, so, how how do you read the the sort of clampdown? You know, both on on the side of clamping down yeah. private tutoring and clamping down on gaming. It seems that this is the the state. Um, Setting boundaries, becoming a nanny. So, yeah, I mean, so just one one thing to to say there about the Gaokao is the yeah, it's this this is um I think, and this is sort of where the article ends that this is a massive source of of stress for for parents and for students. This extremely high um, high pressure sorting exam, um, which you know before Chinese students take this, will go to you know they will go to KFC because um, you need to eat something which is has very high standards of food cleanliness so you see all these queues um outside kfc's um around gal cal time and it's yeah i mean it's i think it's a um it's an interesting development not least because it ties in a little bit to the um capital controls being released a little that we talked about um, a few weeks ago because just a bit more detail on on what the um the chinese state has done this um the the amounts of, of money that were lost by some of the the tutoring firms or the amount of market capitalization was just incredible one went from 59 to 4 billion like pretty much you know very very quickly um so these the private tutoring firms can't make any profit. They can't raise capital or list on stock exchanges in the world, um, and they can't take foreign investment. So there's another thing this means is that the any sort of foreign investment or foreign uh, like overseas um, tutoring firms they've been they've been like sunk by this. They can't they can't um, operate anymore. So it is you know obviously there's there's a there's a definite combination here of social engineering about like trying to do something about the middle classes anxieties about their children getting so anxious about this um exam but also there's a there's a kind of a control of the um financial environment because it's big it's big business like there's a there's a lot of money which goes through these um these tutoring firms way the way it's been presented in the article at least though is that it is mainly political um, so it's not about kind of it's not so much um, the need to control certain aspects of the economy so much as the fact that the CCP is reversing its previous policy, which was to allow a kind of a private sphere, particularly for um, the Chinese kind of the increasingly kind of wealthy um, urban middle classes and to give them some kind of autonomy within their private lives over, you know, consumption, leisure, education and so on. And now that's being encroached on. So the state is being more directive. The Chinese Communist Party increasingly shaping the internal lives of the of the middle classes. So that seems to me the most kind of, I mean, you know, kind of senseless almost. Um, and they didn't really pick up on this. It seems to me that there seemed to be very clear kind of political dangers for the party overreaching into this newly established private sphere of um, increasingly kind of wealthy, increase, increasingly wealthy urban middle class and to uh, to kind of prescribe more directly what uh, what people should be doing with their leisure time, um, how much time they should be spending in front of a screen rather than exercising and being outside, particularly for so many families with only one kid in whom so much is invested. You know, it seems it seems politically um, foolish and potentially an overreach. 
But it, it, that's interesting. I mean, two things. One, there's a sort of false egalitarianism to this, which I think is kind of noted in the article, which is that clamping down on private tutoring seems to reduce competition amongst the middle class um, and to kind of try to reduce these anxieties and not try to depend on private tutoring to pass the entrance exam. But the reality, of course, is, is that while this stops the middle class being able to get, you know, or those who choose to avail themselves of, of, of private tutoring, which is many people uh, avail themselves of this kind of extra step up to help their kids. Uh, the reality is that the very rich will still be able to find private tutors and just do that on a sort of one-to-one basis. Whereas the middle classes and and the sort of, sort of, especially the lower end of it often use these online tutoring companies, right? Which do it cheaper than I guess a private tutor would directly charge. And what that means is that, uh, you know, it, it, the, the middle classes maybe stop having to use so much of their funds towards uh, private tutoring, but the super rich still can. So, you know, there's a kind of phony kind of false egalitarianism and the real problem is actually the, the, the Gaokao system itself. Yeah, I mean, it could it could conceivably create a, a black market in 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 tutoring where I don't know tutors are coming over on the pretense of of um, I don't know something else, and then there's a secret kind of um, panel behind behind a, 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 a you know like a chest of drawers, and that goes to the to the tutoring room, and it's all done very kind of cloak and dagger. Um, but the point that I was going to draw out from the article was that it does it does. Um, suggest or give some figures about how much, um, like what proportion of income is is spent by um, by by families on this, particularly right in the in the periods right up to to taking the Gaokao. and it's you know it is a it is a sizable um, expense. So I guess there is a question there: what is the um, what is the CCP wanting wanting people to to do with that that saved income? You know, save it, invest it. I mean, this is the other thing: like it is the like what if this is taken away? What is going to be given to the to the Chinese middle class? Is it the ability to invest overseas more? I mean, that would be a that would be a very that be a change in in the the dynamic um, of of their expenditure and, and savings, which yeah, would but, have potentially as, a massive. Input, as we discussed, they're not allowed. You know, there's restrictions on how much they're allowed to invest abroad as well. That was what we discussed in our last uh, one of our last three articles. Yeah, but it well. might so. it might change. I mean, I guess that's the. But yeah, I, t- I take your point, Phil, about the, it, it is like inter- it's intervening in, in a very um, anxiety creating part of the um, life cycle for, for uh, st- students. So if a family and hundreds of millions of, kids, of families then... and parents, yeah, like you say. But, but I mean, yeah. so the, the, the backdrop to this. The, 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 the political backdrop to this is also, I mean, so the article mentions rent being, rent pressures being extremely high, right? So in a way, it's the Chinese Communist Party trying to preempt um, things coming to a head for the middle classes, I think, you know, rents are too high, uh, the cost of private tutoring is too high, which everyone feels obliged to pay because they're so competitive. Um, you have the kids maybe kind of dropping out and becoming super alienated. And so, what was really interesting in the article is that it cites this uh, this this thing about the the CCP leadership self consciously being aware that the Arab Spring was due to precisely a lot of these urban strains and that it exploded in this you know failed revolution in, in Arab states and so it seems that the CCP is trying to ward that ward off that by um, trying to yeah, reduce some could. of these strains at the same time, at the same time also of being aware. And this is something I'm like, I, I, I'm personally aware of that the Chinese are 
look at the West and see the way that it has deindustrialized, the way that people are so atomized, the way that the living standards of the majority have dropped, the populist uprisings, and it's, and so on, and that they feel that they need to keep a tight uh, hold on things and not follow down the road of kind of Western de degeneracy, which is very evident. Um, there's a reason that they have, they actually, I mean, this sounds like I'm, I'm tooting my own horn, but they've kind of republished and discussed in the, the Global Times, my Brazilianization piece. Like, no, I just think that's really interesting because they are like, oh shit, yeah, the West is really fucking up here. Um, we need to avoid that, right? Um, and I think it's this really is interesting. So you're getting, on, so you're getting on my ideas. Um, <laughs> it's actually really interesting. I just find that personally really interesting. <laughs> but little, little so of me, George, you know, George is, uh, George is right. Alex is coming out as a tanky and is, uh, getting, I'm not, getting I'm not, I'm not, I'm getting, I'm getting used by them, um, against yeah. my, against your will. Yeah. yeah. They're going, but don't worry. Increase well. Uh, listen, yes, and let, let listeners judge as to how far your uh, your views become more and more pro pro CCP over time. I suppose the only thing I'd say is to, I guess, to round this off is the, um, you know, I think, I mean, yes, that's what's said in the article is that it's provoked by anxiety on the part of the CCP, but it could backfire. You know, so this is the way they're trying. They're kind yeah. of in the process of overreaching, in an effort to kind of uh, control other problems. They repress some you know they kind of repress some other dimension and it could um in a kind of hydraulic way i suppose uh you know be pushed up somewhere else so they end up with kind of uh, their whole kind of system um of trying to increasingly control private life backfires it's funny actually this does in some ways seem like a kind of middle class left liberal dream in the west what the ccp is doing right um kind of good guidance by the state on how to on how to behave on how to spend your private life but also ensuring that life is not too stressful that the state comes in and, and takes care of you but also in a very kind of repressive way with a lot of intervention in in private life it's the it's the pmc dream the ccp one one hour of gaming a day so yeah. you get the kids to shut up for an hour but they're not they're not they don't become a fortnight players or, or whatever the, the bad thing to do is <laughs> yeah um okay so that's all very interesting we're going to obviously keep uh, trying to discuss more things about the goings on in in china um as as we go along and do from these a, from, uh, a, from a very neutral a very neutral very neutral view, not of course by alex's of course no um, i mean uh, like all i'm against is money. western degeneracy i have no uh my my uh, tail is not caught which is a brazilian idiom but you know i, I don't have any uh i don't i don't have any Your i don't have a party pre totally caught your uh, tail is totally don't talk about my tail. we'll be holding don't talk about <laughs> we'll, my be... <laughs> we'll be holding um, you to account talking speaking tail. about catching tails uh phil phil tell us about your your article yeah, so good this segue. one is an article by a good segue indeed. So this is an article called Sales Funnels and High Value Men, The Rise of Strategic Dating is an article by Katie Cunningham from The Guardian, um, the 7th of August, 2021. And I have to say, hands down, this is one of the most interesting articles I've read in The Guardian in a long time. And what's interesting about it is it's um, very kind of the... Tell us what's in it. Tell us what, what it's about first. Yeah, well... 
so let me fin I mean let me let me set it up a bit because um this isn't the normal kind of article that I would bring to um uh, to these kind two or three a episodes but it's about the rise of a particular kind of um approach for women to dating which allows them to kind of I suppose impose some sense of uh, control over this um kind of time consuming and frequently alienating process that has gone online so heavily as well and I knew that it was the right thing to talk about because when I mentioned it in our um, listeners, when I mentioned it in our WhatsApp discussions, George immediately lashed back. And so I knew that there was going to be like, <laughs> a th he was felt threatened by this idea that women should do strategic dating. And then I knew that I had to champion no, actually, the cause of women. You, no, I actually just that I had to champion the cause. Hey, 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 men, this is not the time for men to be talking, George, so be quiet. So patriarchs to be talking so that I would champion the cause of women on BungaCast um, precisely because the men were threatened by it. So what it is, it's um, it's not just so there is a thing called female um, FDS, female dating strategy. And it is um, as well as an interview with an author called Rebecca Campbell and her book called 130 Dates and the kinds of advice that she gives about how to master it. What's especially interesting about it is that the so this female um, dating strategy it's a system of kind of um, heurist I don't know what you'd say kind of hacks uh, rules of thumb heuristics optimization I guess yeah there's elements of optimization there's elements of kind of um, of sales kind of of uh, pitches from sales and um, kind of sales analysis and how to deal with high volume turnover and so on so I mean you know obviously there's some of the bullshit of contemporary kind of capitalist society filters through. But what's interesting to me about it, um, and what I think and I hope the our listeners will be interested in as well, is that it is very opposed to what they call liberal feminism, by which they mean kind of, um, you know, um, well, all Girl the academic kind, kind of, of yeah, but all the academic theorizing about it as well. So the kind of, you know, how to be a decolonial sex worker with your front hole on OnlyFans kind of articles in Teen Vogue. They're hostile to BDSM and the kind of normalization of BDSM, which they see as misogynistic. Um, they're hostile to porn and all the loser men that they end up dating who are totally addicted to porn and to particularly their kind of predilection for, for you know, for kind of um, soft violence in the bedroom, choking and spitting and hair pulling and all that kind of thing, which these women assume comes from porn. And I mean, I'm sure it does. Um, and also to the general kind of losery um, attitudes that they find on so many um, dating sites. So it's not about, it's not the female equivalent of pickup artistry, which was the kind of the male strategy of, which was about sleeping with as many women as possible a few years back. It is very much centered on kind of attempting at least to create um, authentic and meaningful long-term relationships. And what's striking, so I went to the Reddit forum because this is inspired by a Reddit forum. I went to the Reddit forum afterwards. And what's really striking is that there is not, that it seems like um, it's a lot of women who um, have no particular, who aren't kind of versed in feminist high theory. Um, they're suspicious and hostile of it when they see it kind of filtered down to normalization of sex work, like I say, and so on. And it's um, kind of, it seems like very ordinary kind of smart people kind of but trying to kind of feel their way around um, and reestablish some measure of control um, within their personal lives um, and pushing back against, and this is the most important thing. And then I'll, you know, I'm interested to hear what you guys think, but the most important thing is that they're, they see they see that so much as what's offered to women as liberation is actually works to the advantage of men 
today. Um, in terms of contemporary sexual mores, contemporary sexual culture, online dating, they see a lot, all these things that is offered as emancipation, hookup culture, endless choice. You can sleep with anyone without any kind of um, connection. You know, you can recreate your online persona. You can be free in this kind of world that it effectively it serves men's interests far more than women's interests. And I thought it was um, it's a tremendously um, it seems to me very striking that um you know that women kind that there's a whole kind of uh, constituency of women basically who've seen this who've intuited it and seen it and are kind of trying to organize around that insight see now i feel bad for the for the beta cucks amongst us george you were gonna you were gonna speak i was bringing you in i, I wasn't idiots so in fact what my point was in the whatsapp chat was that i was just pointing out that you were shocked that women could think strategically and you were like oh my god have you heard of this female dating strategy there's actually women that's a really that's a really which, bad way to try and recover george which trying to cover up your fear of empowered but, women anyway i know i think it was a it was an interesting article i think i was you know possibly not as sympathetic because the 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 main idea of like the the language of the sales funnel and the it's kind of a tech sis rather than a tech bro approach in that there's you know there are some some quite instrumentalized aspects of of, of dating right, but so that's, but that's that's the that's, rebecca that's, the that's rebecca yeah. campbell so the author so it's not really the fds it's not really the fds um Thing. I mean, it's kind of an add-on to the to the article is this author, Rebecca Campbell, who wrote the 138 dates, and she does the sales funnel thing. Look, like I say, I mean, it, it obviously reflects title. some of the bullshit of contemporary kind of um, life. You know, there's no avoiding that. Yeah. I'm not suggesting it's an emancipatory political project. Um, but nonetheless, there seems to me to be aspects of it which are kind of... Um, uh, refreshing and also interesting like I say in, in that it's kind of very ordinary people trying to kind of carve up their lives in a way that gives them greater control and that they see through the ideology they well, see through the ideology of this, what they this, call this, liberal this, I feminism is, this I think is an important point because the like some of the other um, not that I know so much about this but some of the other kind of dating app hacks or or like uh, things like bumble which I think is the um, the idea there is it empowers women because they need to start the conversation. So it's like, you know, you can only, um, you, you choose the people who talk to you rather than just being bombarded with messages from uh, from all the dudes on on whatever site it is. I mean, I think that is, I mean, it's, it's good that that's sort of, um, that's rejected as a model of empowerment. And in fact, that that very word or that term is seen as, um, as, as non-neutral. So like, who's empowering you for, for what ends, like you're still being sort of done to or, or whatever, you're still being like directed towards particular ends. I mean, I think that's that's good. I mean, in some ways, the question is, why hasn't this emerged sooner? Because you had the game. I think the game must be like 20 years old now, this pickup artist, this idea of negging that you can like, is a kind of a compliment and an, and an insult at the same time. I can't think of one off the top of my head. Um, but yeah, if you do that to enough women, then because yeah, some of them not, have low self-confidence you can you can sleep with one of them not, i think is yeah the it's not just a reaction though to that um i think that's the it's not the female equivalent of that because that whole thing was about sleeping with as many women as possible and this is why it's not the texas equivalent of the of a tech bro thing so the tech bro is how to get kind of you know lonely potential incels who work in it out and kind of um you know sleeping fucking. with women 
yeah, that's the tech bro thing. Whereas this is women seeking to establish, like I say, long-term meaningful relationships, but at the same time without kind of collapsing themselves into um, dependence and responsibility on men. So some of the kind of advice and guidance is very, you know, maintaining financial separation and autonomy, not being totally dependent, ensuring that your partner knows that they still have to kind of uh, make effort within the relationship. So. I mean, I was, yeah. you know, I was, I, 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 I found it, it tremendously interesting. I, I find it interesting listening to you, Phil, to introduce this um, and a more kind of generous spin on it because, and I, I, I hadn't thought about it because my initial reaction to it, reading it was like, my God, how alienated this approach to dating, which is like optimized, uh, focused on optimization rather than serendipity as, as normally this kind of thing would be, you know, you date and you see how it goes and whatever, rather than establishing parameters and you, you know, setting up some spreadsheet <laughs> to like to go about your dates and all this kind of stuff, setting up kind of rules and boundaries and all this kind of stuff, um, trying to seek a favorable outcome. I mean, it just the whole use of that alienated management language seems to me terrible. Um, and it seemed to me kind of, you know, so that it talks about, you know, reducing, um, reducing destabilization and vulnerability in in relationships and it, for me that what that brought to mind was Zizek's great stuff on on love you know the actual falling in love is the falling right that falling in love is a disaster um and yet it's it's something beautiful but it's it's truly a, a disaster um and this is something which seems so controlled and so geared towards not exposing yourself in any sort of way, there's a certain a certain kind of emotional continence to this. And just let me try to optimize and find the right sort of guy who will be stable and nice and blah, 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 um, which, okay, is good because it stops men taking advantage of women, but at the same time seems to lose any sense of, of spark of falling in love of real romance. Well, so I mean, you know, part of so part of what I'm saying is also inspired by the Reddit forum, um, as much as the Guardian kind of article covering it. But one of the things that's very stressed in the Reddit forum is that any if you're dating somebody who's unable to kind of express their vulnerability um, and is unable to talk about themselves in a particular way and that is kind of emotionally cold and remote and does the negging thing and expects the other person to kind of constantly move out to meet them. Um, that's what they say is a red flag and you should no longer see that person move on and that seems to me eminently sensible and you know the i mean while i'm kind of you know i certainly a um you know i'm a believer in the idea of serendipity um you know but at the other on the same time you know that's not also that kind of romantic 90 black and white kind of uh, movie um scene of how people meet also isn't actually an accurate account of how many people meet and a lot of people do meet online and also i think you know lots of people have their in even if it's informal and kind of um semi-conscious a lot of people have their rules why not make them kind of you know why not be more self-aware about the kind of rules that you use and ensure that the rules you use are um tailored to protect yeah. you from all the kind of all the creeps and weirdos out there especially if you're mm. a woman so, I mean, I guess, Phil, you, might, you must not have seen Sliding Doors, that that evocation of serendipity. Um, it's not very good there, Moshe. Um, But no, I think that's that's probably part of it, right? That it is kind of deliberately quite anti-romantic because the there is a certain, like, yeah, there's a definitely an, an ideology of, like, like rom-coms, like romanticism, which is um, definitely biased in in men's favor. But I think the yeah. you know the thing which I which I can well no, but they're with, women's fantasies, right? I mean that's what it plays into. Yeah. It plays, which yeah. might not be realistic. Yeah, but it plays into so women's you, fantasies. Yeah. So as a friend and of so mine, as a good friend those, of mine told me, is like the what that 
um, rom-coms are probably even more damaging to women's mental health than porn is to men's. So, well, they well, well put. So if, I mean, if, if that's rejected, that's one side of it. And then I think the other side, which is really, I think is genuinely the kind of good dating advice is like, but like treat yourself as, as high value, which is actually a horrible, like kind of management speak way to put it, but like treat yourself as, as uh, valuable, um, then you know and expect people to treat you as such is a is a very good bit of advice for all human mm. relationships and being quite brutal about people who don't treat you that way or who have or who have signs of, of behaviors which will lead them to do that like that's you know that that probably would work that's good advice of, but, know, but i just want to be treated like the piece of meat i am <laughs> well that's a whole you want to be object you want to be thing. treated as an object yeah uh, there's certain no, no, there's no. certain kind of uh, philosophies i think which think about us as objects in, 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 ser- in seriousness though i think one of the tells at least which which um you know provide support to at least my interpretation or my sense of being a bit creeped out by this was that they say like oh you know look at like in jane Austen, jane austen's novels in the 1800s um you know their women also were had you know, discussions about how to select a proper suitor. But that's a terrible model to take because, you know, so basically the article's making the argument that this isn't just some kind of postmodern novelty, but has existed for, you know, 200 years um, that, you know, women all, all always used to kind of have rules and, and ways of selecting a suitor. But selecting a suitor in 1800 was a time when women had no independence and so selecting a suitor was someone who would support them uh, in, in in life. And that's not something that we would want to yeah, uh, rekindle that's, in, in that's any way gone. and, and I mean, it, so not... so just sorry just to finish my point though is that like looking at it historically it almost seems like the window in which women had independence um and where people could meet as free individuals and marry and pair up and, and marry or whatever um for love um and didn't and didn't have it mediated either by uh, family pressures or or the need to or, or the lack of independence, nor mediated by kind of alienated capitalist forms of uh, or like late capitalist forms of 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 interaction. You know, like via apps and optimization and all the rest of it. it seems to be relatively small, like post the nineteen sixties, but before the internet. I don't know, man. I mean, I um, I suppose I would say I think the tell is really that you and George are both so threatened by this. This is very clear, and I think that's the real <laughs> tell about the actual kind of importance of. Okay, of this. so you have you have that one point to make, but I think just and wait, the, wait, just, just no, there's no, no, another no, point. No, George, there's another point I'd like to make, please, if if I may. Like I know, remember, I'm speaking on behalf of women here, women listeners. After so, you, please, <laughs> please do speak on behalf of women. women need everywhere. more men like you, Phil, to to speak in their place thank women you. love it when men speak <laughs> so, in their place thank you, phil's, yes. phil's wearing his this is what a male feminist so um the you know as is said i mean one of the advocates of fds in the article says the point of this is not to get men to behave in a particular way which is the point of all the kind of the pickup artistry misogyny you know so it's about giving women kind of um a set of guidelines and a framework with how to um, filter out people in the process of uh, of dating, right? Which is tends to be high volume, particularly in the era of online dating, and particularly in the aftermath of the pandemic and all of this kind of stuff. And so, it's not about it's not a kind of a sinister way of manipulating people. It's about um, identifying the people that you're 
compatible with. And again, I'd stress like, you know, it's about finding um, a creating a meaningful long term relationship. It's not about um, hooking up. And in, it's in fact defined against hooking up. And that seems to me positive. You know, I'm not going to I'm not denying that there is an alienating kind of um, aspect with all the optimization talk. And there is the bullshit that comes with almost all contemporary kind of culture it inevitably um, infiltrates some of these arguments. But it still seems to me there is some some remarkable kind of um, uh, some remarkable humaneness in mm. um, some of what's being offered. So two, two two points. One which just sort of came to me as you were as you were talking there, which is like if if somebody actually put this strategy into practice, then I guess what you'd have is a lot of um, uh, fewer dead ends. So kind of like you know people who maybe there's a few dates and there's something interesting and could it happen? Might it happen? That's it's it's quite like I guess it kind of um, it's it's brutal in in that sense of like. Right. The end goal is to get a is to get a you know meaningful relationship. Anything which takes uh, time away from that, um, a meaning, meaningful long term relationship. Anything that takes time away from that, not going to engage in. And that's like that could, is probably a positive thing. But also, you, I guess you lose all of the like the the yeah the, the side alleys and dead ends or, or however you want to put that. That just came off the top of my head. So yeah. No, I think that's very yeah. phrase a bit better. But the second point is about about Austin. So just to like to bring to bring her back in. This is a point that Piketty makes. I, I believe that, like this sort of way of um, finding um, finding a partner that's sort of described in 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 Austin's novels. This is like more relevant now because what's the main thing that people um, that dist- distinguishes like or that determines where you end up uh, financially? It's not income, but it's wealth. So actually, marriage, inheritance, these are really important um, social, or they're more important. Um, than any time since since Austin's time. Um, these kind of processes that you need to navigate and need to be very skilled at choosing the right uh, the right mate. Otherwise, you know, you could be in in trouble. So go for the rich dude. Yeah, if you don't have the, well, I mean, but the point is it's real, right? And while people are waiting for the communist utopia, you know, if they need kind of romantic and sexual partners and the rest of it, um, and they don't have the kind of the, the, um, the family and the culture of Jane Austen's time, they need something else, right? No, indeed, um, indeed. But that, that would bolster my point that this that the window, the historical window in which people were uh, independent and free and able to meet um, without these concerns of, you know, of, of, of wealth or being supported, whatever, was a period between 1970 and uh, I 2000. Don't think, or, I don't think no, that exi- I don't think that existed for women. So I don't, I don't think it, um, I don't think, I don't think it's real because, um, you know, like, so the point is there are more independent women now who, um, have their own jobs, access and control of property and so on that they, you know, that there's more, that women are more autonomous now than they were in some brief window in the early sixties or mid seventies or whenever you want to put it. So notwithstanding the fact that, you know, um, we've suffered in a particular kind of, uh, that we've suffered kind of regression in some aspects and there's more inequality. And I like George's point about Piketty. It still seems to me that, um, you know, that there are, um, that women have greater chances, life chances than they would have had in the seventies. 
Okay, um, we will leave that there. Maybe we need to set up a dating and sex hotline. Maybe this is Bunga Goes Red Scare. Um, we can offer the the male alternative to what the girls on Red Scare offer. Uh, if you're We're interested in this- You're still waiting for your just... online. You're still waiting for your online OnlyFans account, Alex. <laughs> uh, and your yeah. Teen Vogue just... article about being a sex worker online. Yeah, a decolonial yeah. sex worker. It's, yeah, it'll only become pornified. There's no way to do Bunga dating and sex without it becoming pornified. I think that's the- Yeah, we should, lessons. we should, Maybe we should... it the- the yeah, we shouldn't call it the purple scare we should, yeah. <laughs> we should, we, and we should definitely avoid the bunga branding i think uh anyway so. uh we'll we'll leave that here uh this has been another three articles from alpha bunga bunga we hope you enjoyed it and we will catch you another time thank you bye-bye